as a young Christian, not so long ago, uh, as a young Christian, I remember I started uh, uh, preaching uh, in the open air, in something I used to do regularly in my lunch hours at, at work and over weekend. And my favorite verse of the Bible was the one just coming up for you on the screen there, John 10:10. 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In my enthusiasm, I would be uh, spreading my gospel of what wonderful turnaround in your life if you come to Jesus and how he had all these wonderful things prepared for you, a life of fullness, if only you'd come to Jesus. Looking back on those days, I feel somewhat embarrassed. Why? Yeah, I was 16. <laughs> Why? I feel somewhat embarrassed about how I was handling the Bible. It wasn't. It wasn't the whole story. And I wasn't doing what theologians call exegesis, but eisegesis. Have you come across those terms? Exegesis, you take out of the text what's in there and what's within its context. Eisegesis is... It's the reverse. Eisegesis would be? Well, the opposite of taking out. No, no, sorry, I'm thinking the opposite of taking out? Putting in. And that is effectively taking a text of the Bible and doing what to it? Putting in. Putting into it what we think we should do. And it's a, it's, it's a problem preacher's face and it's one that we have to look at. I get it all the time uh, particularly um, uh, as people start out in preaching. You have a great idea. I want to preach about this and then we turn to the Bible to do what? To find those verses that we think are telling the story that I want to tell. That is not the job of a preacher. The preacher comes to the Bible and allows the Bible exegesis to speak and to speak to God's people. And it's something that I look back on my early years of Christianity, it's something that's easy to do still now. It's a challenge to every moment to come to the scriptures and ask God to speak through his word rather than tell God what I think he ought to or should be saying. And so when I look back on John 10, 10, I realize more so now, not that I'm an expert in any sense, but I'm a little older, just, just a little older, that those words have an eschatological perspective. What am I talking about? Those words, John 10.10, 10, have ultimately, they have a temporal meaning, uh, we've seen Jesus' cross, but there's an eschatolog- eschatological theme to them. What am I talking about? Oh, sorry. <laughs> a futuristic fulfillment to do with the end of time with the eschatos or the end and so Jesus has come to give us the life in all his fullness he purchases that by his cross but that life in all his fullness is ultimately realized when beyond the cross beyond our deaths and ultimately at the end of time it's an eschatological framework in which it's surrounded. 
the Christian life, rather than being the John 10.10 text, the Christian life is more grounded in John 16. Listen to this. Perhaps would you read it with me? John 16.33. In this world you will have trouble. Tell me, is that a lie? That is an honest projection of how the Christian life, not just the Christian life, life in general, particularly the Christian life looks. But Jesus says, take heart. And so it's a two-sided message. One is, there will be trouble, difficulties ahead for the believer. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. In effect, Jesus has gone ahead of us and is preparing for our future. And I want to look at that with you as we look at Daniel 8. Daniel 8 is really it built, if you like, on that foundation or that background I've just presented to you. With the channel Daniel 7 last week, we had those bizarre hybrid creatures, not Ralph, uh, just uh, those bizarre ones with all kinds of weird features. They were ferocious beasts. We represented four kingdoms. Do you remember the four kingdoms that the four animals represented? The first one, Babylon was what animal? It was a hybrid animal. It was a, a lion and an eagle, a winged animal, an eagle. Then we had the, the Medo-Persian kingdom. What animal was that? Even I forgot what an animal that one was. It was bear. Then the Greeks. What do you see when you see Jim? A leopard. Stealth. You see, stealth. Uh, and then finally Rome, by undefined monster. And it says Rome uh, is a morphing monster. It, it changes shape. It, it morphs into every establishment of power we've seen since. And so from that, we move on to chapter 8. In chapter 8, we're now going to home in on two aspects of, the, of that future, of two creatures. But we're no longer looking at them in these ferocious beasts. They're much more familiar animals, but nevertheless animals with some power. We're looking at a ram and we're looking at a goat. We're looking at a ram and a goat. So let's go through chapter eight together. Our theme for the book is hope and grace in trial. And just a one subheading again. Expect adversity Hold true to Christ and await his eternal kingdom. Expect adversity, hold true to Christ and await his eternal kingdom. First one, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So the second year of, of Belshazzar, uh, Daniel is now an elderly man. He's already had one vision. This one relates to it. It suggests, doesn't he? I've had a vision after the one, not only in chronology, but in relationship. So Daniel has another vision. It's somewhat related to the first. This time he's in Susha, which becomes a very important Persian city in due time. He's given something again of the future. If, for the, if the first vision in, in seven was a bird's eye view of the future, then the second one is a homing in of some of that detail, and particularly of two empires. So verse three, there before me 
was a ram. So the first of uh, these with two horns. I've already given this away. What is this a ram? What is this ram a reference to? Uh, so it's in one of the empires. So it's the middle two. Okay. So can you remember the second empire? The Persian Empire. It's, it's, a, it's a reference to the Medan Persian Empire. And we know that, isn't it? We're not just guessing here. So let me show you. Uh, Lynn didn't read so far, only because we would, would have taken a long time. But if I take it to verse 20, Daniel tells us for the dream what it is. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the Medes and Persians. And it's, it goes back. So we, we haven't got a pattern here. If we go back to chapter 2, Remember Nebuchadnezzar's uh, dream? And he saw a, a statue and his chest and arms were of silver. That's the Medan Persian Empire. It, with Daniel sees it in chapter 7. We looked at it last week, verse 5. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. So the Persians are in view. Daniel is now beginning to give us a closer uh, uh, picture of this second beast, which he now refers to as a ram instead, or rather gets the image of a ram instead of a bear. He's fleshing it out. And, and the point is simply this. In 19 years from his dream, Babylon will be overthrown. That's what's going on. Notice how he says there that no animal can withstand it or him. So we've got the Persian Empire here. It's pictured as a ram, and we're told that nobody can withstand it. Who's in power at this moment? Daniel 5. Uh, sorry, uh, 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 yes, uh, yes, the Babylonians. And what, what king? What, uh, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is reigning. And so here we've got another kingdom, a ram, and Daniel is being told in his dream he's such a powerful beast that no animal can withstand him. What's that saying about Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom? It's about to fall. In fact, 19 years' time, but nevertheless, 19 years in advance, Daniel is being given a vision that's giving him precise details about the future. A powerful ram will destroy anything and everything within his path. And on the 12th of October, 539 BC, the Persians captured and overthrew the Babylonians. Belshazzar, on the night of chapter 5 of Daniel, just after the inscription on the wall, was overthrown, destroyed, assassinated, and the Persians were in power. That's the ram. Let me t show you the goat now. Verse 5. I was thinking about this. Suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes uh, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram. Who's the two-horned ram? The Persians. So there's a goat about to attack a ram and he shatters his two horns. But I missed this earlier. Why has the Persian kingdom, or the, uh, the ram got two horns? Because it's a two-fold kingdom. Why is one bigger than the other? Because the Persians were the stronger element of that kingdom. So you've got this two-horned ram, okay, uh, and now you've got the goat, and he shatters their horns. What is that suggesting? Complete overthrow. If the horns are of power, larger and smaller sections, there is a complete overthrow of power 
by who? By the leopard, the Greeks. Okay, and then verse 21 tells us, so if we jump to verse 21, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes is their first king. So back to chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The statue, this is now the chest and the arms of silver. And it's Daniel's vision, chapter seven, verse six. What animal was it? The leopard, another mighty beast who comes by stealth. The leopard is a formidable creature. So the Greeks are in view. Who is this mighty horn? We know from history. Who is the mighty horn of the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great at the age of 22. It's a long time ago, Chris, eh? <laughs> at the age of 20, <laughs> for some. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed he was looking across to you when he said that, Lee. Okay, so at, at the age of 22, he overthrows the Persian Empire. And listen to this, verse seven. I saw him attack the ram furiously. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him. What does he do to Persia? Utterly decimates it, okay? At the age of just 20, 23 rather than 22, he takes on the Persian Empire with just 35,000 soldiers against 200,000 soldiers. The 31st of October, I think we've got an exact date here, 31st, 1st of October, 331 BC, and he conquers them. Darius III collapses. Alexander the Great advances, takes control of the empire. Look at verse seven at the bottom. None could rescue the ram from his power. Darius was powerless against Alexander the Great. And so here's what Daniel's been so shown. He's been shown that 19 years from his dream, the kingdom that he's now serving will fall. Beyond that, he's been now shown that beyond 19 years to 200 years, two centuries into the future, and with precision, another kingdom with a very powerful dominant leader, who we know to be Alexander the Great, will overthrow that kingdom. So Daniel now has been given 200 years of advanced history, if you like, of the future. Alexander the Great, within 11 years of conquering Persia, Ended up, ended up ruling the world and the greatest superpower of history. At age just 32, he disappeared. Notice what happens in verse eight. At the height of his power, his large horn was broken. What happens to Alexander the Great at the height of his power when he's just 32? He dies. He's Power is broken, the end of an era. And after his death, this is what happens after his death. Remember, look, Daniel is getting this hundreds of years in advance. After his death, we, see, we're looking at this retrospectively. After his death, his kingdom is divided into, listen to this, the gold became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in his place, four prominent horns grew up, four kings. We know in history, that Alexander the Great's kingdom was divided fourfold beyond his death. It was never again a united kingdom. Now to one of those kings was given the Babylonian part of the empire. And in due time, in due time as we look beyond now, 
Alexander's death, verse 9 onwards, and here's the trajectory, verse 9. Out of them, out of the four, of the division, the division of the Greek, uh, Greece uh, empire, there came another horn, okay, which started small, so someone who's coming into power gradually, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. What's the beautiful land? This is Daniel, a Jew, and he's speaking about a beautiful land. He's certainly not talking about Australia. Israel. Israel. Amen. Okay? I haven't even been there, but I'm, I'm assuming it's beautiful. Okay, and listen to this. It, it, that power set itself up as a great, as great as the prince of hosts. Who is the prince of hosts? God. And what is this king doing? Setting himself up as God, against God. He took away the daily sacrifices of him and the places of the sanctuary was brought low. Verse 13, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. Verse 14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be desecrated. Let me just say something about the time here. What have I been saying all along? I've lost my clock, so God help you. It's 2 o'clock already. 2 o'clock already. Okay, yeah. That was you, wasn't it, Deb? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just reset it. I'll just start again. Great. Do I have to start the sermon again? No, no, good, good, good. So, look, I've completely lost what I was. So, look, whatever we have we been saying, and here's something important. What have we been saying about how Daniel 7 to 12 is coming across to us? Is he coming across to us in literal imagery or symbolic? Okay, so, so you have to stay true to the genre of material, material you're reading. Don't worry, Deb, I'll make it up. Uh, Oh, I can still see it, thank you. You have to stay true to the genre of material that you're engaging in. So when it says 2,300 evenings and mornings, is that literal? No, because you've broken the consistency. So Daniel is not giving us times, dates, where you can go, oh, this date, that date. Remember, even Jesus, remember Jesus told us about the future? And then said what? Nobody knows. So I don't think this, you know, if you disagree, you're very welcome to do so. But I, I can't see that Daniel is giving us dates. I think the 2,300 years is merely a reference to a long period of days or time. So the important elements about this figure then. Verse 9, he's attacking the beautiful land, Israel. Okay, that's his focus. And notice what it does there, what it does to the sanctuary. Verse 13, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation. The, the reference to the rebellion that causes desolation. We know something of history. What do we know about it? Does anyone know what this event in history is? This desecrating of the temple? A pig! So we're talking about, so who is this ruler? Does anyone know uh, uh, who is this, this horn that grew slowly, became very powerful? Antiochus Ephenes. You know of him from history? Okay, so, so uh, 164 BC. Uh, and he died a few years later. I can't remember his age. I haven't got it here. So this is roughly 164 BC. 
Uh, and, and so this r- uh, ruler, Antiochus Ephenes, he comes, he enters Jerusalem, he utterly desecrates the temple area, he, in order, he outlaws Jewish worship, and in order to, to absolutely be a stench in the eyes of Jews, he takes what, a forbidden creature. What did God say about the pig? Yeah, don't eat it. So Lorraine, don't eat it. Okay? I'll have it all. Uh, so, no, no, the laws have changed since that time. But, but it, was a, it was a detestable creature. And so what does Antiochus do? He gets the most detestable creature in the sight of Jews and he takes it to the highest profile area in Jewish life, which was the altar of God, and sacrifices a pig on it. It's an absolute desecration of religious thing and what's he saying about God in doing that I'm in charge he takes on the hosts of heaven do you see and so Daniel is being given this picture of four over 400 years ahead it's a picture of absolute dismay unthinkable that anyway he obviously hasn't seen the pig we don't think but he's understood that the temple will be desecrated that is the most unthinkable thing for a Jew and so therefore notice his response verse 27 I Daniel was exhausted and lay ill can you see hey let me ask you how seriously is Daniel taking the future of his people very. I, I was exhausted. A, it was physically affecting him. He was weighed down to the point of illness. Remember when Jesus was weighed down in Gethsemane? What happened to him? Drops of blood. Physical manifestation of utter anguish. Here's a man in utter anguish, weighed down with illness, exhaustion. And, and then he says, I was appalled by the vision and it was beyond understanding not that he didn't understand it I think what is meant here it was beyond comprehension and so here's the question who's this been written to? who's Daniel writing to? the Jews of exile who have now returned home so this is shortly after Daniel's still in exile. They've returned home. He's writing his memoirs. So what's the significance? So as Daniel writes his book, let me ask you this question. What's the significant detail of the future, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar and accumulating uh, 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 finally in Antiochus Ephenes? What is the most significant aspect of their future that he's recording about the future of the Jews? The downfall. Yeah, the downfall, their persecution, their demise. So can you see what's happening here? The Jews have just returned home. What kind of spirits are they in? Hi. Daniel, talk about a killjoy, writes to them and tells them what? Yeah. Yes, exactly that, Jerry. Daniel writes to them. And his message, Mr. Party Pooper, is your future is not bright. Oh, you're rejoicing, you're back in the land. But I'm telling you, says Daniel, that your future is one that is degenerating into worse and worse, worsened predicament 
culminating finally in the reign of a terror who will desecrate and destroy you utterly. And so at this juncture in Daniel's memoirs, as the exiles have returned, where there's rev- celebration and revelry and hope, after how many years have they been in exile? Seventy, seventy, close, seventy, seventy, seventy years. Yeah, 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 pretty close. Hey, hey, well, what's 15 books between friends? Yeah, 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 yeah. Next time I owe you $85, I'm going to give you 70. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, thank you, brother. Okay, so after 70 years of exile, Daniel's message to them is, it's going to get worse. The history, it will repeat itself and repeat itself and repeat itself, but in a spiraling downwards motion. So you see, the Israelites haven't really come out of exile. They've just changed geography. The return to the land was never the end of exile. Daniel talks about an end to an exile which they haven't understood. That wasn't yet to be. Let me take you back to Daniel 7. This is, what, this is the end of exile. The end of real exile. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the return to the land. That's the end of exile. The Jews were not really out of exile. It was just a change of geography. And that exile, the end of it, began when? When did the exile of the Jewish people, the exile of God's people, when did it begin? Yes! On Christmas Day, 2,000 years ago, began the first movements of the exile. When did Jesus start preaching about the, the return from exile. In what terminology did Jesus preach about the return from exile? What did he say? What was his quintessential message? Repent for the kingdom of God. Exile banished is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach. It was, the, it was his heartline central message to the Jews is that you're in exile. You never came out of it. From the, from the moment of Egypt to now, you're in exile. It's why Jesus, I don't know, let me just, this is a bit of a, a sideline uh, side here, but do you remember when Jesus was on the mount being transfigured and he speaks to Moses and Elijah and he speaks about what? Yes, he speaks about that and he speaks about something he's going to do. What's he going to do to them? about his soon departure. And we all think it's about his cross. It is about his cross, but the word really isn't departure. The word comes from uh, the Hebrew word exodus. So Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah on the mount, and he's speaking about the exodus. What is he effectively saying? That he's about to deliver his people from exile. 
It's the very same thing he's saying here with his preaching about the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That is, in the, in the years of AD 31 or thereabouts, Jesus walked through the kingdom, for the, for, sorry, from the streets of Israel, and he began to preach that the empire that will put an end to all of the empires that will deliver Israel from exile was about to come or was near. It's 2,000 years on now. We still have yet to see it. But what has been the experience of God's people since Jesus is preaching that the kingdom of heaven is near? What has been the experience of the church generally throughout history? Persecution. Persecution. And so here's the thing, reality, friends. Even though the, the kingdom is near, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, it's not yet. And this is what I said before about over-realized eschatology. I've used this a few times by the end of the end of my ministry, hopefully a long time into the future. You'll know what that word certainly means. What do we mean by over-realized eschatology? It's people who think what? Who think? Yeah. They're on application. There's a bit more. People who think we're already out of exile. Over-realized eschatology is over-realizing the future, the end. It's Christians who stand in pulpits and tell you, you should be a billionaire. And you should be 100% healthy. I always find it surprising when they say that because they're wearing glasses when they say it. And I'm thinking, what about you, man? <laughs> Seriously. I've heard people wearing glasses saying you should be healthy. I feel like going up there, taking his glasses off and stamping on them and saying, well, how about you, mate? Can you read this? So, friends, over-realized eschatology is preaching that supposes we're out of exile. The kingdom of heaven is near. The exile hasn't ended, friends. What has happened? Let me ask you. The church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ in the last century, the one just before the one we've entered, uh, the 20th century, had more martyrs in the 20th century than all the 19th centuries before. Things aren't getting better, they're getting worse. And look, no one wants to hear that. But it's your own fault for paying me to preach it, okay? It's your own fault. Because here's the reality, and here's, here's where all of history is going. And, and, and remember Antiochus Ephenes, who brought about this great culminating persecution on God's people, it happens more than once. And here it is at the end of time, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, a man doomed to destruction who will pose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. That is, isn't that a repeat? of history, but it's not future. And so what is Daniel saying to you? Because we're just like the Jews. We come to faith and we're back to, we think we're in the promised land and we're celebrating, thinking it's gonna be wonderful, a life of fullness. And what's Daniel saying to us? We're in exile, we're in exile mate. You're celebrating too early. It's gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse. And in fact, 
there's going to be a new Antiochus Epiphanes. Perhaps a very literal Antichrist who will set himself up against God, attack God's church, almost decimating the church of the living God. So 2,500 years on, friends. Here's how we're doing for time depths. 2,500... Oh, another 40 minutes, thank you. Okay. 2,500 years from Daniel's vision. Daniel's word to us is... Look, it's great. Seriously, the Australian has got an evangelical, professing evangelical Christian prime minister in Scott Morrison. Fabulous. Back in Britain, we could only dream of ever having a Christian prime minister. You guys have got one. But don't get too excited. Seriously, don't put too much hope in any government, Christian or otherwise. Don't put too much hope in your investment. Don't put too much hope in your property. Don't put too much hope in your education. Don't put too much hope in your career. Don't even put too much hope in this guy from abroad. They rejected me out there. That's why I'm here. Okay? Yeah. A late arrival. Okay? Yeah, and I said, it's a wrong state because this is not the penal state, is it? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got lost en route. Okay? Yeah, I'm on the way to New South Wales. So, so, friends, Daniel's message is don't invest in this world, in your government in your bank balance or whatever else you got. Things are heading to an end. We're still in exile. Oh, we may have changed geography, we've come to faith, but we're still living in the land of exile. Look, they lose loved ones and you lose loved ones. They get cancer and we get cancer. They lose money on houses, we lose money on houses. We're still in exile. Eschatology is still to be realized. And so Daniel's message is this. Look to Jesus. And I want to show you, just briefly as I try and finish now, something of what Jesus' kingdom will look like and why you can invest in it without being at a loss. Listen to this. Let's just, Jesus demonstrated it for us. Hey, let me just say this. All that Jesus did during his ministry was not setting a precedent for how life would look beyond beyond his departure okay and i think we need to understand that as christians that jesus during his ministry was not setting a precedent for how life would look beyond his ministry and this is where some extreme churches get it wrong oh if that's what it was like when jesus lived then that's what we should be expecting and if we're not getting it we've done something wrong no he was not setting a precedent he was setting a picture of the future this is what the future will look like matthew 9 a kingdom where illness will be eradicated jesus went around he healed every disease and sickness jesus was preaching a kingdom where famine is eradicated what did he do were we just two loaves Five loaves and two fish fed innumerable people. It'd be a kingdom where evil is eradicated. What did Jesus do when he encountered demonic oppression? 
He casted out the evil spirit, left the man. What did Jesus do when he faced death? There'll be a kingdom where death will be eradicated. What did Jesus do with death? laughed in the face of he conquered it. He said to Lazarus, get up, get out, and the man did. And so that's the kingdom, Christian, that you are investing in, you are looking forward to. That's where your hope is. And so my closing words to you are these, friends. Look, Matthew 6. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can destroy and with another thieves can break in and steal for where your treasure is there is your heart also put your money your mouth your hope your expectation your future in that kingdom this one is only going to get worse if there's moments of of joy great enjoy them if God blesses you financially, praise God. But get the most part of that and invest it in your future. Let me ask you, look, we go to work, we get money. Do we spend it all at once? Oh, yeah, there's a temptation to do that, isn't it? <laughs> well, what do we do if we've got any sense? Stick it into a superannuation fund. If we've got any sense, we'd invest not just our wealth, but our hope, our expectations in that superannuation fund. Invest in the kingdom. Have your mind in that kingdom. And he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so the message today is simply this, friends. Expect adversity. Hold true to Christ. And await, await his eternal empire.